Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. With the return of the fourth and final season of Sex Education, I talked to its creator, Laurie Nunn, about the boundary-pushing and very funny comedy series. I talked to the director of iTanya, Craig Gillespie, about his new dramedy, Dumb Money, which chronicles the 2021 Wall Street phenomenon known as the GameStop Short Squeeze. Plus, director Alice Troughton on her new movie, The Lesson, which sees an egotistical writer, played by Richard E. Grant, be mean and nasty to a young aspiring writer, Ireland's own Daryl McCormack. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I bored you a few weeks ago by telling you about my car breaking down. I'm going to bore you this week quickly by telling you about a block drain. Yes, that's right. Sunday morning we woke up to sinks full and all that kind of stuff because a drain was severely blocked. You never know what a day has in store, I always say it to you. The man came, got a hose, did his business with the drains. There was a smell that there was planes overhead at one point, an aeroplane going, you know, to America or somewhere. I was worried we might down it. Such was the potency of the smell that was emanating from my drain to the movies. And lots of people have been gladly taking my advice and going to see past lives. A couple of weeks ago, we interviewed its director, Celine Song, and I told you it was the best movie of the year so far. And I continue to think that it's about two Korean childhood sweethearts of sorts who get separated and then reconnect again. It is a beautiful story. Everyone who's been in touch with me who's seen it is agreeing. So again, if you haven't got to it, I'm telling you, Past Lives is the movie of the year. You should go see it. It's still very much in the cinemas. When Oscar season rolls around next year, you're going to be hearing lots about it. I can assure you of that. And thank you for everyone who got in touch this week. You can do so screen time at newstalk.com. And I'm open on Twitter, X at John underscore Fardy. Now, in TV this week, I was watching this. Okay. Might then, I just. I love you. Oh, that's nice. Good night then. You said that's nice. Yeah, well, I couldn't lie, Eric. And it's not like I don't really like her. I do. But love is a big word. And I, I don't even know if I believe in love. It's all just, it's all just a chemical reaction. It is. You're the most romantic person I know. Maybe you just don't feel that way about Ruby yet, which is fine. But you have to tell her the what? The truth. The truth. Because the longer you leave it, the more hurt she'll be. Yeah? Now that is a clip from The Beloved. Uh, I guess teen sex comedy is the best way of describing it, called Sex Education. And you may know it's back for its fourth and final season on Netflix. It primarily deals with Otis Milhorn, who's a student at Moordale Secondary School. Otis is kind of ambivalent about sex uh, because his single mother, Jean, played brilliantly 
by Gillian Anderson is a sex therapist and she has lots of affairs with men of which she has no real interest in, but she's a therapist to people who come with all their sex problems. So she's very upfront about sex. And as a result, he isn't. And in the first season, he sets up a sex clinic with this girl Maeve, played brilliantly by Emma Mackey, to help students in this school, Moordale, with their sexual problems. And their business becomes a success. And the series follows that, but also the messy teenage relationships that go on in this school, Moordale, and the relationship between Otis and Maeve, and there's a will they, won't they. It's been quite, I suppose, boundary pushing in lots of ways. It's dealt with all sorts of issues in a very upfront, open, but most importantly, funny manner. Now, season four, which is the final one, sees Moordale Secondary School closing, and now Otis and his best friend Eric are in a new school called Cavendish Sixth Form College and they're nervous about, you know, what's this going to be like and all. And it turns out Cavendish is this very right-on progressive place where there's daily yoga and communal gardens and sustainability and you're not allowed to gossip and it's all about being kind. Meanwhile, Maeve is in America in college studying creative writing under a very funny Dan Levy, he of Shit's Creek fame, who's a rather somewhat pretentious and egotistical college professor. This is an adored show. It is very funny. It's very sweet. There's a lot of issues in it as well, but at its heart, I think it's really just very funny and sweet. Uh, and I think anytime you're dealing with teenagers trying to negotiate love and all that stuff, you're onto a winner. If you have a good writer and creator, which sex education does, it was created by Laurie Nunn. And I had a chat with her earlier in the week about the fourth and indeed final season of Sex Education, which is now available on Netflix, I should say. Let me start at the end in a way of sorts. I was thinking... You know, despite all the boundaries and taboos, this show breaks in terms of gender and, you know, uh, trans issues and sex in general. It seems to me, and I'm curious about your take, the reason why it's so successful is at source, it is about teenagers negotiating sex and adulthood. And it's sweet and it's funny. And that's the most important thing about it. And of course, those taboo breaking things are very important, but it still has to be at its source, funny and sweet, because people will turn it off despite their best intentions, unless it's that. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think for me, what really initially drew me to the idea, um, you know, was the the comedy of it. Um, I think that, you know, the the hook is very heightened, the idea of this teenage sex therapist on campus um and uh yeah i just really saw it as an opportunity to you know create uh teenage characters um that could be really entertaining to watch and like um have a lot of fun at the same time as hopefully starting some more educational conversations and in terms of where it begins this year in cavendish uh you know school environments traditionally in a show like yours you know, they're harsh kind of places and it's the law of the jungle nearly. Yet Cavendish were in this completely different place where optimism and, you know, positivity are cherished and there's a no gossiping jar at one point. What was what was your thinking with setting it in, in, a, in a place that, you know, certainly incredibly dissimilar to my secondary school and I'm sure yours as well? Um, I think the idea really came from wanting to put our Mordell students like into a new environment and really watching them suddenly be these like little fish in a big pond. Mm. 
Um, and I think what was really fun to play with is that Moordale, where they came from, I think in their eyes, they sort of saw it as being like pretty forward thinking and um, pretty progressive. But then they yeah. get to Cavendish and they're just like, oh, like, you know, that was nothing. Um, <laughs> and in the writer's room, it really was just a joy to get to kind of create that world, the world of Cavendish sort of from the ground up. And I think, um, you know, myself and, and the other writers on the show, we all view ourselves as uh, like pretty liberal people. And it was quite fun to also make fun of ourselves. And I think that's, mm -hmm. you know, where it comes from. I think it's uh, done done with a with a lot of love, but we're also saying, you know, like we don't know everything and we all have blind spots. Okay, okay. So even the wokest amongst of us might have blind spots. Okay. Uh, tell me this. You have Dan Levy when uh, Maeve goes to off to this dream college in the States. And he's he's great. He always is great. But, you know, you, it seems like you might be possibly sending up creative writing classes or the people who give them in, in colleges. I'm, I'm just wondering, did you, I, you, I know you did an MA in creative writing. Do you have a, I don't know, a jaundiced view of some of the people who might've taught you or? <laughs> um, uh, I think what I really wanted to write about, um, you know, th through the character that um, Dan plays is uh, just like how much power teachers can have and how much power they can wield um and i always think about it with you know not not just at university but also like um when i was at school like i think you always remember the really amazing teachers and then you also remember the ones that were really damaging yeah. um, but you don't really remember any of the kind of ones in the middle um, the so so's <laughs> yeah the so so's so uh yeah i think that um you know like yeah obviously teachers and then and you know in in our show we have like absolutely amazing wonderful teachers as well who yes completely transform people's lives but i think also you know we pe people need to be careful when they're like molding the next generation yeah. emma Mackey, who i i spoke to actually on this show and didn't ask her about sex education because she was promoting her role in emily uh, and i didn't think it was appropriate but she just, I don't know, seems to get better and better with, with each passing season. Does it kind of seem almost unimaginable that, you know, she she was never Maeve? Because that's the kind of way it seems. And also with Otis as well, but just particularly with, with Emma, she just, you look at her and despite what she does, you just, you see her in the role of sex education. I think that's the um, real joy of a teen show. Um, we mm. work with... Um a really brilliant uh, casting director called Lauren Evans. And I think, you know, um, with a teen show, you just get this opportunity to sort of find these new um, faces that people are going to, you know, hopefully fall in love with and then like mm. want to follow for multiple series. And, and we get to kind of grow uh, with the actors. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, I always find it really strange that there was a time where, like, I, I can't even remember what the characters looked like in my head before the actors, because now they're just, mm. you know, now Adam yeah. just... Honor, and it just is uh, yeah it is what way. it is yeah. yeah have you been I like I was just googling this morning as you do in preparation for these things and the amount of pages devoted to this show is staggering really you know and the amount of people who are interested in Maeve and Otis and the you know without giving spoilers will they won't they what will happen to them long term and all that have you been surprised by the life this show has had Oh yeah, completely. Um, <laughs> I uh, it's How still, could you not be? I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it still feels um 
quite surreal sometimes. Um, yeah, I just, I, I really didn't think that people would, um, you know, connect with the show in, in the way that they have. Um, I thought that the hook of it was like really heightened and the whole thing's like a bit weird. Um, so it's just been, yeah, it's been really lovely just to see like how audiences have, you know, have, have connected and like invested in, in these characters. Yeah. You know, I, this sounds like a name drop again, because I've already mentioned talking to Emma, but I spoke to Ricky Gervais, who is a very successful net Netflix show called Afterlife. And we spoke about him using this Billy Joel song called So It Goes, because it's used beautifully. And he said, you know, that's the great thing about this show that Netflix are paying for. I can get the music I want. And the music in Sex Education is great. And I in preparation, I rewatched the first episode just to remind myself of where it all began. And suddenly Billy Idol comes on with dancing with myself. And it's just it's just brilliant. It must be great to be able to have access to these songs, which I imagine you clearly love. Yeah, I think that the music is um, well, it's become such a such a mm. huge part of the show. Um, we work with a wonderful um music supervisor called Matt Bitha and he's just able to find like just the most like just the greatest tracks you know for each moment mm. um and uh yeah I think that uh it just really like it just really lifts the show and it kind of helps helps with that feeling that you can't really place it you don't really know yeah. what place the show exists yeah. in. and uh it's sort of like this teenage utopia kind of like a comic book or something and I think uh the music just, yeah, really contributes to that. You've probably been asked this a lot, and forgive the amateur Freudianism, but were your teenage years particularly awkward? Because it just seems, I know it's called writing and it comes from your imagination, but were you a, a happy, a sad or a middle-of-the-road teen when you look back now? <laughs> um, yeah, it, I was very awkward. I was, like, just obsessed with uh, musicals and I had braces and okay. glasses and... It was hard. My teenage years were hard. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, yes. So yeah, I'm definitely channeling a bit of a, I think like okay. Otis is, is probably the closest uh, to me in terms of the characters, just like uncomfortable in my skin. And uh, yeah, and then oh. I, I just couldn't wait to leave school. And then I've ended up like writing a show that's set in school for like nine years, which is. <laughs> yeah, in circles we move. Years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all the all the great people seem to have awkward teenagers and some of them even still wear glasses today. You know, can I just ask you finally then, you know, certain shows, you, you kind of get the blues when they're over and you think those characters, I'm not going to see them anymore. And it's public knowledge. This is the last season. So but for you, I mean, is it maybe grief's overstating it, but it it must be strange to be waving these people off that you've lived with in a way for like 10 years. Yeah, it feels. Um, I think I'm still processing it a little bit okay. just because I've, I've, I've honestly just have been working on the show for so long and um, <laughs> just like all day, every day. Um, but yeah, I feel you know I feel really excited to see how people are going to respond to the final series and um, and it definitely felt like the right time to bring it to a close. Um, and I'm yeah looking forward to what's next. But uh, yeah, I'll always miss writing them. Yeah, well, we look forward to what's next as well. But in the meantime, people should watch all four seasons of Sex Education. Thanks very much for talking to me. Thank you. Laurie Nunn there talking to me about the final season of Sex Education, which landed this Thursday on Netflix. It's been wildly successful. Uh, 40 million views, I think it was, for the first season or something like that. So uh, people who like this show tend to love it. 
So it is available now on Netflix. Season four moves in, in interesting directions. I, I won't say much more than that, but it, it, it took a while to get into the new school. But, but once you do, uh, you'll enjoy it if you've been a fan of the first three seasons. Up next, Craig Gillespie, the director of I, Tanya on Making Dumb Money. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now the big new release of the week is a movie called Dumb Money. It's based on the frankly crazy true story of the YouTuber who brought Wall Street to its knees and got rich by turning the video game retailer GameStop into the world's hottest company. In the middle of everything is this regular guy, Keith Gill, played in the movie Dumb Money by Paul Dano, who starts it all by sinking his life savings into the stock and posting about it. When his social posts start blowing up, so does his life and the lives of everyone following him. As a stock tip becomes a movement, everyone gets rich until the billionaires fight back and both sides find their world turned upside down. So you kind of have this rattle bag of investors who are not traditional investors, they're college kids and things like that. And they're using an app called Robin Hood. And then that gets shut down and all hell breaks loose. And you have big, big Wall Street guys trying to short the stock. That might sound a bit complicated, but it really isn't when you see it on this movie, in this movie, Dumb Money. And that's just my powers of description letting you down. And of course, this is all a true story. You can read all about it. Now, as I say, it stars Paul Dano. It also stars Pete Davidson. Seth Rogen plays a hedge fund guy who's brilliant in it. Vincent D'Onofrio's in it. It rips along, almost kind of like a music video or something. I really enjoyed it. It is directed by a man called Craig Gillespie, who previously gave us I, Tanya, that brilliant brilliant movie starring Margot Robbie and Alison Janney. And he directed a couple of episodes of one of my favourite shows of recent years, Pam and Tommy. And I had a chat to him about dumb money. So Craig, I was thinking, you know, we have this image of people who are on the internet as, as kind of lonely and, you know, they think the earth is flat and are, are, you know, subscribe to strange views about things. But I think one of the points your movie is make, making is that, you know, people can be lonely and on the internet, but also have stuff to say and be useful to society. Or or, or what, what are you saying about that? Well, it's partly that, but it's also, this was a, a, a very defining moment in, in our lives because this was during COVID, uh, which is very much a backdrop to, I, th I think, why this happened. Um, there was a lot of isolation, a lot of hardship, people losing loved ones, people out of jobs, people, you know, small businesses shutting down. In particular, in the, in the United States, a lack of government aid happening. And this incredible sense of the disparity of wealth that was going on in the country that's just growing. Uh, so there was a lot of online chatter, a lot of like you know people looking to connect. And there was this Wall Street bets community that can be very brash, very aggressive, that talk about trading stocks. And uh, on this community was this this guy, Roaring Kitty. Um, Mm. who had invested his life savings of 55000 in GameStop and had been doing it for a year, like sort of championing that. And it started to create this awareness and this movement. And people started to jump on the idea because it was a stock that was uh, heavily shorted and people realized online that if everybody started buying it and pumping the stock up, it could really soar. Like it, and, and it did in this unbelievable way. So 
I think all of this happened because there was COVID as a backdrop. There was, a, there was people looking to connect in a way and, and just have a voice for the frustration that was going on in the country. And it happened to be around a stock where they could really hit the, you know, the one percenters or in this case, more like the point oh one percenters and hit them where it hurts, which yeah. is in their wallets. And just, just, you know, for people who don't know the story or people who haven't seen the film, where are these people doing this as a way to make money or as an FU to Wall Street and the 0.1% or a combination of both? Uh, there's a, there's this online community on Wall Street bets, uh, but it, it, it actually expanded outside of that. There was TikToks. It was a lot of people talking about it. But to do it, a lot of them bought, bought the stock on this app called Robinhood in the United States. It's, yeah. And it's a, supposedly a free app. Of course, like nothing's free. If, if, if something's free on, on, online, it's like you're, you're the... You're the uh, the person paying for it. So in this case, uh, everybody was using this app. And then suddenly at the height of the stock rise, the app froze the buy option on GameStop. And then it plummeted. There's a lot of people that lost money. There's a lot of outrage. There's a lot of frustration and the feeling of a system being rigged and wanting accountability, mm-hmm. which involved a congressional hearing, um, which is what this movie follows. And is it true that your son... Uh, was was involved, as oh. in he was quietly betting. He was very much involved in this, which is really like how I, I managed to have the access into this on an emotional level. It, to see him mm. doing riding this wave, he timed it perfectly with the options and with the stock spike that happened that in that 24-hour period where it went from 120 to $400 in uh, 24 hours, which is astronomical in terms of his stock climb um the amount of trading happening in that day i think was was the the same amount of trading that happened for the whole year in the stock market and um wow. he timed it perfectly and then he got out and the next day the robin hood put the freeze on it and it crashed and people were outraged and then he actually jumped back in again just very similar to our college <laughs> characters in the film so i got to say but then the outrage wow. that happened with the robin hood situation the real anger and frustration and you know, and the demand for accountability. Like I, I lived through all of that too with him, and he would keep me constantly informed of what was going on online. And that's like that was what I wanted to bring to the film, like to really like champion, mm. you know, the, the day traders, the average person, and like the voice that's not heard. Yeah, and you know, are you saying through this movie, and maybe it's an obvious question, but when a person sees this, are they going to come away thinking the director thinks Wall Street's very corrupt? No, we're very we're very careful about that. <laughs> it's not that it's it's not that that well, it's like they they use the system. The system needs to have accountability. Mm. It's not the individuals. so the system is corrupt. It's not that it's corrupt. It's just it's it's it makes it very hard for the day trader. It's like with the way that that, that they can do things, and there is this lack of accountability. It's like I, I believe like I I heard somebody say it's it's not that it's illegal, but is it moral? Uh, it was sort of the way that we yeah. look at it, and it's like it's really, it's really, you know, so, some of the moves that happened, like definitely raised eyebrows, and obviously demanded an investigation from Congress. And sadly, like mm-hmm. there was, there was nothing that came of that at this point. And the hope is that this keeps fanning that, 
and there is some accountability. Paul Dano, who's absolutely brilliant in it, and and he just he's a mercurial kind of actor, and I mean that as a compliment. He's he's so versatile. Like I spoke to him two years ago for the Batman, where he was playing, I know, you know, an incredibly different character. It's just very very impressive. No, it's amazing. It's like that that year he was doing Batman and the Fablemans. It couldn't be more of a diverse range of characters. Yeah, incredible. I was going to say, though, he plays this gentleman, Keith Gill. Did you guys reach out to Keith Gill, who's very much alive and well? Yes, along the way, it's Ben Mesrick who wrote the book that this is based on. He also Mm. wrote uh, Social Network, and he he was investigating. I believe he tried. It's like, um, but the thing is, Keith Gill, um, and he managed to maybe talk to his brother, I believe, and there was a little contact with the parents. But he's truly stepped out of the public eye since this happened. That final post in the movie as April of 21, he's not been heard from. And at a certain point, we had to honor yeah. that and respect that. So uh, both of our writers, were uh, Rebecca Angelo and Jessica, uh, sorry, Rebecca Angelo and, and Lauren Shukabloom were were investigative reporters for the Wall Street Journal. So they had this yeah. really like strong sense of like, really going after the facts and it's everything that they've pulled from is, is sort of public domain in terms of he had enormous amount of posts that he talked about all kinds of topics. He's, he did one interview with the Wall Street Journal right when this was happening. So we've tried to pull as much as we can from, you know, actual facts down to, you know, his brother actually did run a mile naked when he was in college. And it's, uh, you know, <laughs> becomes part of a scene that we have. <laughs> Yeah, a, a very a very funny scene. And, and then finally, Craig, uh, people will know you very well for uh, I, Tonya, which is a fantastic movie. One thing I wanted to briefly ask you about was Pam and Tommy. And, and this sounds like horrendous name dropping I'm doing, but I did interview <laughs> Lily James. And I was I was blown away by that show because I, I don't think people, people didn't watch it, were complaining about it. But when you actually watched it, it's, it's a brilliant piece of storytelling about all sorts of things. And in a way, the hero of the piece is Pamela Anderson and and we're trying to point out the world mistreated her terribly. Was that what drew you to directing a couple episodes of that? Absolutely and Lily did such an incredible job with that and the humanity that she brought to it and the complexity it's so hard when you're you're dealing with such a public figure to like not just do a caricature uh, to really get under the surface mm. and have the emotional complexity that she did but it continued the narrative that we had with Itania, which is is how complicit we are as a society with what we do to people uh, in the media. And mm. everybody had this very simplistic version of what happened back then and just made assumptions from like the headlines, like these, you know, these like very like tweetable headlines that you get. And it was so far from the truth. They'd say everybody thought that somehow they were complicit in it. So to be able to like sort of reframe that and and show how complicit we are as a society uh and, and you know when you see her go out on the jay leno show and you see how she's treated and you see the way the audience mm. is reacting back then it, it seems with with the distance that we've now had it seems unfathomable but that that you know that accountability was really uh, was really something that we wanted to look at. Excellent. Well, listen, uh, Dumb Money is is a terrific watch and a very entertaining watch as well, which is, you know, what a lot of us want going to the cinema. So uh, lovely to talk to you and continued success, Craig. Thank you so much. Hey. Help your mother. Why well, me and not Keith? Just shut up and do it, okay? Have to take the potatoes. You're all rich now? Huh? Mr. 23 million on paper, but I won't sell. Kevin. Loser says what? 
What? Kevin, let Keith tell you. Tell us what? Oh, uh, I was waiting to tell you in person, but the uh, stock we bet on GameStop is up. Uh, good. How much up? He's up 23 million, Pop. <laughs> You're an asshole. Don't kid us. Uh, it's, it's real. Yeah, it's real. And he's refusing to sell. What is going on? You're pulling our leg. No, your son's a huge internet celebrity now. <laughs> Millions of people, including stock mom, thinks he's some, like, I don't know, investment genius. No, he is a genius. No, he's not. You're up 23 million. <laughs> and you're not selling. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. A clip there from Dumb Money, and you heard Paul Dano there arguing with his father and his brother, Pete Davidson. And before that, you heard me talking to its director, the director of Dumb Money, Craig Gillespie. And Dumb Money, I should say, is in cinemas this weekend from the 22nd. Up next, The Lesson. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now finally, we turn to another of the week's new cinema releases, The Lesson. This sees Liam, played by Ireland's own Daryl McCormack, who we adored in Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, and indeed Bad Sisters. He plays an aspiring and ambitious young writer who eagerly accepts a tutoring position in the family estate of his idol, renowned author J.M. Sinclair, played brilliantly in this by Richard E. Grant. But soon Liam realises that he is ensnared in a web of family secrets, resentment, and retribution. Sinclair, his his wife, Helena, played by Academy Award nominee Julie Delpy, and their son Bertie, all guard a dark past, one that threatens Liam's future as well as their own. As the lines between master and protege blur, chaos, ambition, and betrayal become a dangerous combination in this kind of taut noir thriller, which I really enjoyed. Richard E. Grant is really dark and menacing and sometimes charming in it as this troubled and egotistical writer. Dalmer Cormac is great in it as well, as is the always reliable Julie Delby. Now, it is directed by Alice Troughton, who's mostly known for TV. She's done all sorts of TV from Doctor Who, Tin Star, Discovery of Witches, uh, The Living and the Dead, Cucumber. And this is her first movie. And I spoke to her earlier in the week on Zoom, and I began by putting it to her that this really felt like a book, even though it actually isn't a book. Well, but I know what you mean, and and actually I can understand that, that you think it comes from a source material. I mean, actually, the reason why I think it is bookish, and it is a literate thriller, and it was one of the, it was one of Alex's talents, and uh, but it, it, it it's based loosely autobiographically. The family is obviously a kind of recreation of uh, lots of different kind of experiences that Alex had. He never went through like that one horrendous experience. He was but a tutor, is that He it? was yeah. a tutor. And he was just come out of Cambridge as well. Um and 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 also he 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 had always I think felt kind of uh on the outside, a periphery outsider. So that idea of Liam as being, you know, somebody that wanted to write but couldn't and the idea of writer's block uh, was something that really resonated with him. And, you know, knowing Alex, he could have written it as a book. He's mm. currently doing stand-up in Edinburgh, yeah. doing a stand-up show. He's got so many talents. But, yeah, and I think that one of the things that I really loved about it and what you're maybe reacting to 
is the dialogue, the kind of yeah. of the kind of snap and crackle of it. Yeah. You kind of think that must come from someone, but that is all Alex. That's his wow. talent in writing, and that's observation. And 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 I think underneath that, a keen sense of the absurd, a keen sense of injustice, and a, and a wicked sense of humour. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you're right. And the dialogue seemed, in a good way, bookish, where they're trading about, you know, how art comes to be made and all that kind of stuff. Listen, Darren McCormick, a fellow countryman oh. who I've met before, he's great. Yeah, obviously, Julia is brilliant as well. But the thing about Richard E. Grant is, and sorry, this sounds like a name drop. You've met a lot more famous people than I have, but I did interview him once. And I just have this feeling that the world adores him uh, because he's just been in so many movies that people just have such a special place in the heart. Also, things he said about like the death of his wife. He did a show about hotels. He's just the most charismatic man in my experience. And I've met so many people who share that feeling of him. So it's a very long way of asking, but did you always want him? Because the role seems unimaginably anyone else's. I, I remember writing Cammy, my producer is here and sat here. She was the one who's performed the joys of Zoom. The joys of Zoom. I wrote. I wrote my I children wrote. are in that room, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah that, I can show you my dogs as well if you want. Um, I, I wrote. I remember writing a kind of two-page passionate document about why Richard was exactly right for this part, and um, and why that we needed to see this, why we needed to see him in a part like this. Because I agree with you. I think he's one of the actors that and we're very used to Richard popping up and being splendid in things but what yeah. I, I really liked the idea of him being the figurehead and the lead and to have this and, and and Richard was attracted to the part because he really understood Sinclair he has been in those circles for mm. most of his life he he and he said to me in rehearsals that he totally understood that toxic relationship between father and son He's been very honest, um, open, in a pocket full of happiness about his mm -hmm. um, sense of grief and loss, and uh, you know, kind of the, the 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 sense of grief that pervaded his life. And when he read the script when he was six, when his his wife had only been dead for six months, mm -hmm. and so that grief really resonated with him. And the the way that grief can turn into toxicity, and I think drew him to that part. And it was one of those. I won't say harmonic because it was such a tragedy for him to lose his wife so early. I would, ne but 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 what it was is that he was in the sweet spot for that material. You know, he really understood it and and could bring his experience to it. I don't think he needs to have that. No, to sure. Great, brilliant roles and part. Yeah. But what I think is, I I managed to have a great part and a great actor coming together at the right time. And I'm really grateful for that experience. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And listen, I, I don't want to give a spoiler, but he's he's a not tortured genius, but, you know, he's clearly very talented as a writer. That's the way it's presented. And we have his wife, played brilliantly by Julie. But there, we've seen this trope before, tortured genius leans on his wife, but there's a lot to his wife in this. I, I gather that was maybe one of the, the selling points of this for you, that this was a, a refiguring of that traditional character. Yes, yeah. And, 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 and it, you know, it can sound too hubristic to say we wanted to reinvent the archetypes of noir or kind of, you know, do the rug from a female gaze. I mean, that sounds really potentious, but we were look, interested in looking at what happens when you kind of, it, like one of those weathermen that crop in and out. What mm. happens if you shift that narrative from a different mm. point of view? What happens if you 
turn the tables and and see it from one of those characters that traditionally are peripheral and silent and objectified, yeah. objectified in the way that you know Darren McCormack's character watches. Um, and that that's all kind of quite noiry tropes. And then what happens if you subvert that? Alex had written that into the, the 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 script, so it was within the kind of foundations. And then Julie and I worked really hard to make sure that 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 we had the right calibration to bring her to the fore to 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 have that payoff. And you've got an actor that's at the top of her craft. She's a superbly experienced performer she's also a director who's directed seven films um and so it was really uh to work with somebody at that kind of like height of their talents was um but we needed somebody like that to pull it off i mean and, and yeah. really does it amazingly yeah the three of them are great in it they, they really are daryl's great we should just talk about how great daryl is daryl is great daryl is i just don't want to fly the irish flag because it's so obvious He's a, he's a great actor, and he was brilliant in in uh, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand as well. He was brilliant really in good. Sisters. He's great in this. Listen, our time, you know, is ebbing on, so I wanted to check something with you. There's always this idea that you, you're an acclaimed TV director, and you have been for a long time. There's always this idea that TV directors are, you know, silently hoping to get into movies, and that might not always be the case. But but I have to ask the leap to suddenly be making a, you know, just shy of two hour movie. Was it everything you hoped it'd be? Was it a pain in the ass? Was it wonderful when you were finished, but heartbreak to actually do? Or what was the experience like compared with TV? You know, I don't think they, I, I mean, I'm going to do, everybody be like, oh, but you know what? It's it's, it's, not, it's true. not what it was. Yeah. And it, when yeah. I when I was starting off there, you know, it was like TV is TV and film is film and never the train yeah. for me. You've either got one sensibility or the other. But I mean, no, I, and then we had the Sopranos and Breaking Bad. Uh, and, all well, yeah. and actually the whole structure of television in the kind of time that I've been working in has completely changed. And, uh, you know, the budget level of budgets that you're working at with high end television, you could fit three films plus change. Change. And yeah. the other thing I would say is when I was making television as well, I did I did EastEnders early on and yeah. I went out to 8.2 million people with an episode of EastEnders. And I was wow. I'd just been working at BBC Films and I would see these films come out and play to like one person for it, which actually I'm really delighted to. I think that that's absolutely brilliant. That's part of what making a film is. But in terms of, you know, audience budgets, mm -hmm. you you know, t television now, and especially high-end television, and you look at the kind of character arcs, and uh, you know, it 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 it, it, it is craftsmanship. Mm. We had a whole spate of directors jumping from movies yeah. into when the high-end television came into the frame. So, so what I would say is, I I, I found that I could use a lot of my experience um, that I'd crafted mainly to really lean heavily on my very talented heads of department and give them their own creative space, which I think is something that is quite unusual for movies and more usual for television when you're having to be so spread out. And But in terms of... I, I can't say that it was like, yes, and now I've spent yeah, my, sure. my time with the cold face. Here's suddenly my... But, <laughs> but actually what it was, it was much easier. Here you go. Yeah. That secret well, job. There you go. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that answer. Well, Before you mentioned when you mentioned EastEnders, because I spoke to a director before and they said directing 
a soap opera like that, as it was called, and still is, I guess. It's a terrific skill because you have to turn this around in such a short space of time and a very exact to a very exact type as well as location. Did you find EastEnders a very good kind of I'd be in the loo, like between take go <laughs> because it was like so fast and you and, yeah. and you know, I, I don't do anything I don't love. I'd watched these centers since the very first bongs. I was doing something that I cared passionately about. And I was doing amazing episodes. There's a writer called Sarah Phelps, who's now one of our top writers, who was writing the EastEnders episodes at the time. And so her dialogue was amazing. So, you know, you were you were shooting scenes in 10 minutes and that... Mm. And and then they have to hold up. They have to go out at prime time, and you have to get the performances. And it's you know. So yeah. what I feel is I cut my teeth in very hard circumstances, and yeah. so it was almost relaxing, even though the movie was only twenty two days long. I mean, look, I've I've come off Midwich Cuckoos and Baghdad Central, yeah. and that haven't got the same kind of restrictions as eastenders do for sure but <laughs> at the same time there was a lack of other voices and there was a simplicity and there was a kind of pure uh a kind of flow between me and my dp that i found much simpler on a film to do and i am i think a lot of what my craft has shown me is be simple you know if you if you feels like you're forcing it or you're making it too hard or you're trying and the choreography isn't a dance and it's not working, you know instinctively that you're doing something wrong or something needs to change. And I could bring that onto the floor with me and keep a very simple lens, a joyous but simple lens. And I think that that's all that experience helped me do that. But also I made my days as well. So there you go. That's the television. That's the television director coming out in me. Excellent. Well, you did a terrific job. So continued success in either film or TV, The Harder Discipline. Lovely yeah. to talk to you. So nice to talk to you, John. Thank you very Cheers. much. Good swim. Yeah. Not as warm as it looks. Don't do it again. I'm sorry? Lake's off limits, for their sake. It's only been two years since. Felix, they're a little delicate. I'm sorry, I, I didn't know. You do now. I finished your novel, by the way. Bring mine over tonight, we'll debrief. Uh, I might need a little more time to finish reading it. You found time to swim. A clip there from The Lesson, which is in cinemas this week from the 22nd of September. And you heard me talking to its director, Alice Troughton there. That is it for this week. Next week on the show, very excited, I'm going to be talking to John Carney of Sing Street fame and Bachelor's Walk and Once and all those good things. And of course, Modern Love as well on Amazon about his new movie, Flora and Son. And I'm going to be talking to Ken Loach's screenwriter. Paul Laverty about their new movie, The Old Oak. So a busy show next week, which I'm looking forward to. In the meantime, I'll just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. If you want to get in touch with me on any stage, please do so. You can email me screentime at Newstalk.com or my Twitter handle is John underscore Fardy. Thank you for listening and I'll talk to you next week.